Well, Heavenly Father, we, we pray that um, as we look at your word now, your spirit would be at work in our hearts and lives, that you will draw us to the Lord Jesus, uh, that we would believe him and rejoice uh, at the wonderful invitation he has for us. Help us to listen to that invitation uh, and to listen to the warnings as well, uh, that we may be with you uh, in that great feast on that last day. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Martin and Regina mentioned earlier that today is Palm Sunday. Uh, we are exactly one week away from Easter Sunday, where we remember the resurrection of our Lord Jesus. And one, day, one week before Easter Sunday was the day when Jesus entered Jerusalem and was hailed as King. And many churches will be remembering that today. Uh, some of those who were hailing, as king, hailing him as King waved palm branches as they did, and so people call today Palm Sunday. And we looked very closely at the events of that first Palm Sunday a few weeks ago when we looked at the first 17 verses of Matthew chapter 21. Now if you look at the Bible, Matthew 21, all the way to, to almost the end of Matthew's Gospel, halfway through to chapter 28, all of that is set in one week. Now it's a week that started when Jesus entered Jerusalem and ended with his death and resurrection. So lots of things happened that week and today we're continuing to look at, at some of them. Now those of you who were with us last week will, note, will remember that Jesus had been teaching and preaching and healing in the temple at the beginning of the week. He had driven out money changers and merchants who were there. He had been questioned by the chief priests and the religious leaders about what authority he had to come into the temple and, and do these things and he would shown them the answer by pointing to John the Baptist. But they hadn't wanted to hear it. If they had thought about it carefully and thought about John the Baptist and they would have realized that Jesus was Lord of the temple. He was God, come to his temple. But they had refused to accept it. And he had told two parables against them. The first one said that they didn't really obey God even though they pretended that they did. And the second one showed that God was going to come and punish them. They, though they were the religious leaders of Israel, would not be part of God's coming kingdom. They were the ones who looked like they had God's approval, but really they didn't. That was last week. Now in the first 14 verses of chapter 22, which we're looking at today, Jesus tells another parable. He is still speaking to the chief priests and the Pharisees, the Jewish religious leaders. They were the original hearers of this parable. And he's still talking about them. They are the original target as well. The story Jesus tells here is very much like another story he tells on another occasion in, in Luke 14, but it's not the same story. Because like most preachers, Jesus was happy to adapt his material and, and use it in different ways and different circumstances to make different points. And here we're looking at this story that he tells us here in Matthew. And we'll see there is both invitation and warning in this passage. The parable starts in verse 2. When Jesus tells us that the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. <coughs> Sorry. Now, the main subject of the parable then is about this king. Or this, thank you. Yeah. This, uh, this kingdom of heaven. So this, this, this feast represents this kingdom of heaven. 
Now the kingdom of heaven was God's promised kingdom. The kingdom that was going to be ruled by God's promised king. God had promised David, King David, a thousand years beforehand, that his dynasty would always rule over Israel. And God would be a father to David's sons. And David's throne would be established forever. But Israel, in her history, had rebelled against God. God had put the physical kingdom to an end. And yet the prophets had prophesied that God, one day, would once again come to save his people. And not only Israel, this kingdom was going to extend into all the world. And the son of David was going to be the king. God was still going to be faithful to the promises that he made to David back then. And the kingdom, that kingdom was was what Israel was waiting for. And Jesus, talking to the chief priests and the scribes and the Pharisees, said, look, the kingdom of heaven is like this. It's, It's like a man who gave a wedding feast for his son. As a great, it's going to be like a great celebration to, to honor the king's son. But then, when everything was ready, the king sent his servants to call those who had been invited. Now, nowadays, when you're invited to a wedding dinner, you get a card, don't you? That gives you a date to RSVP by. And if you're anything like me, you put it in your diary, and then you make a mental note to RSVP, and then you forget to do it until the RSVP date and the groom has to call you up or worse his mother will call you up and say are you coming or not and you've got to tell the answer because they've they got to know how many tables to book for right? if people say they're coming they say yep yep we're coming and then they don't come well, that's a problem isn't it not only is the food wasted but then the angpao coming in will be less than the expenses for the food in which they have to pay now, it's a little bit like that back in those days as well. Not the Angpa bit, right? but the RSVP bit. You see, back in those days, when you were going to have a wedding dinner, what you do is you send out the invitations. You don't say an exact time, you just invite the people. And those who are coming will say yes. And based on that number, you slaughter the animals, you cook the food, you make all the preparations, and when everything is ready, you send out the message again, it's ready, Come. Well, in this story, the king sends his servants to the invited guests, the ones who presumably had agreed beforehand that they would come. Verse 3. And he sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding dinner, but they would not come. Well, that's pretty strange, isn't it? If the Agong sent you an invitation to come to his son's wedding, and you said yes... Well, chances are you'll probably make an effort to go. And we live in a constitutional monarchy. If you live in a country where the king is more, even more powerful, that would be even more surprising. How can people refuse to come when the king calls them for a wedding feast for his son? That's rude. In fact, it's unthinkable. Well, what's the king going to do? Well, he's patient. In fact, he's humble. He tries again. Verse 4. Again he sent other servants saying, Tell those who were invited, See, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat cars have been slaughtered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. Look, it's great. Dinner's prepared. The oxen or the bulls, the fat calves, they've been slaughtered. Uh, the word there is literally sacrificed. And everything is ready. Please come to the wedding. 
But how did they respond to the king's invitation? Well, there were two kinds of responses. The first one was in verse 5. But they paid no attention and went off. One to his farm, another to his business. This first group of people, they just ignored the king. They were passive to him. They didn't attack him or anything. They just disregarded what he said. Just went and did their own thing. One off went, to his, went off to his farm, went off to his business, and, and they insulted him passively. That was bad. But the second group were even worse. They insulted the king actively. In verse 26, <coughs> sorry, in verse 6, we read, The rest of them seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. Now these guys really hated the king, didn't they? Only did they want to skip his son's wedding? They actually abused and murdered the servants he'd sent to invite them. Now this is worse than rude. This is, this is downright treason. And so the king did two things. First thing, in verse 7, the king was angry and sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burnt their city. But he killed them all. And as they happened to be inhabitants of one city... You can do all kinds of things in parables because they're just stories. But he burned it as well. And he punished those who did those terrible deeds. And the second thing he did in verse 8 and 9 was he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those who are invited are not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads, that is, or, or also can be translated street corners, and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. So no longer was the feast only open to those who had were previously invited guests, people who he thought about. The standards are out the window. Anyone and everyone now is being dragged in. And so in verse 10, the servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was full of guests. See, the moral background didn't matter anymore. Everyone was included, even those of ill repute. People off the streets, whatever they were like, just brought into the wedding. So the hall was filled with guests. Now remembering the context, do you you see where this is going? The Old Testament pictures God as throwing a big feast at the end of time. We read about that in 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 our Old Testament reading this morning. But in this parable, this this feast, this wedding feast, is is a is a wedding for his son, which, which makes you think of Jesus. We've already seen it's a picture of the kingdom. And the people who were invited to the kingdom were, were first of all, the Jews, or the bulk of them anyway. And it looked like they were going to come. They looked forward to the kingdom. They claimed that they believed the Old Testament upon which the kingdom was, was, where the promise of the kingdom was to be found. But when the time came for the banquet, for the kingdom to come, they didn't want to part in it. The Jewish leaders, the scribes, the Pharisees, the chief priests, they... They didn't want to be in the kingdom where Jesus is king. Where those who belong to him live under his blessing and rule. Some of them opposed him passively. They just ignored him. Instead of giving their temple and their nation over to him. Others opposed him actively by trying to kill his servants. Trying to kill him too. They did not want to be part of his kingdom. They did not come to the feast. And remember the two things the king did in the parable? The first was to send his troops and destroy the murderers and burn their city. Well, that's what happened to Jerusalem in AD 70. Forty years after they rejected Jesus, 
And they refuse to repent even when God sent them the second chance for the preaching of the apostles in Acts. And the Romans came and destroyed the city and burnt it. The second thing the king did was send out his servants in a non-discriminatory way. Remember they were to stand on the main roads or street corners, grab anyone they could, good or bad. Still till the wedding was full. That's what happened with Jesus' disciples as well. At first they went only to the Jews and the converts to Judaism and then God broadened the scope of their, of their mission as he'd always planned to do. and Sent them to people of every tribe and language and nation. Not just to religious people, not just to moral people, not just the people who got it all sorted out. No, they were sent to everyone. Good or bad, everyone. Come in. And friends, that's the same today, isn't it? We are still God's servants in inviting people to the feast. And we are sent to everyone without discrimination. Not just people like us. Not just people that, that we think are okay. Not just, not just people the world considers decent. Everyone is invited to the feast. Everyone is welcome to the kingdom. We call on every kind of person to turn to Jesus as king. And to enjoy being part of his kingdom. However, there is a twist in this tale. Not everyone who is invited to the feast, and who accepts the invitation, and even comes along, is really a guest who is meant to be there. There are some people who seem to be in the kingdom but don't really belong there. Who look like they're part of the wedding feast, but, but don't have a permanent place there. Who come to church and join Bible study groups and enjoy the life of the kingdom, but, but don't really belong in the kingdom. It's not because of their background. We've already seen that's, that's not important. But it's their dress. Metaphorically. Verses 11 to 13. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wet garment? And he was speechless. And the king said to the attendants, <coughs> Bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Well, that's a distressing end to the parable, isn't it? I would understand why those who refused to come to the wedding missed out. Makes sense. But now someone is kicked out of the wedding. He's tied hand and foot, rendered completely powerless, and is put outside, away from the wedding, away from the celebration, in the place of outer darkness, a complete abandonment and hopelessness, where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth, where there's anguish and turmoil and despair. It's a picture of hell itself. Why did the man who was actually brought in to the wedding dinner end up this way why did the king turf out his guests well the reason Jesus says is that he had no wedding garment he wasn't wearing the right attire now when you look at the commentaries there's a bit of confusion about this some commentators say the wedding garments are supplied by the host in those days other commentators say they weren't but if you look at the parable it seems that everyone in this dinner is meant to be wearing one of these, except, and is, except this man. And 
The people are dragged in off the streets for the wedding, both good and bad. You can be pretty sure they weren't all dressed up for the wedding. So you're not pulling people off randomly off street corners and, and you find they're all dressed up, were they? Right? So it must be these, these wedding garments supplied by the king. He gave them appropriate clothes to wear for his son's wedding. And this man was not wearing them. And so he was kicked out of the celebration. The parable does not tell us what the appropriate clothes are to wear at the wedding of God's son. Jesus leaves it up in the air. Because that's not his point here. We can figure it out from other parts of the Bible and we'll come back and do that. But it's not the main point Jesus is making. What he's saying is, look, there are some who look like they're in, but really they are out. Remember, he's already talked about the chief priests and the scribes and the Pharisees. They wouldn't be part of the kingdom. But remember how in our passage last week we saw that they looked like they had God's, God's approval. But they didn't really. And what he's saying here is, look, even when he brings in the kingdom, there will still be people like them. Even in the kingdom, there will be those who seem to be in, but who are really out. Who look like they have God's approval, but really they don't. Who do not belong to the kingdom, but there they are eating and drinking with those in the kingdom. And yet eventually they'll be found out. For the king will see who they are and will kick them out of the celebration. For as Jesus says in verse 14, many are called, but few are chosen. Now, for the budding theologians here, Jesus is using the word called in a different way than, than Paul uses it later. Right? Called here is not the result of being chosen. It's not what theologians call effective call, the calling of God that results in salvation. It's, it's a general call. It's the widespread invitation. Many are called, Jesus says. Many, many people are invited to the wedding. Many are invited to come into the kingdom. It's, but only few actually come. And even out of those who come, there are some who aren't really there. And so those who genuinely come into the kingdom, on the king's terms, are few compared to those who are invited. Many are called, but few are chosen. Interesting, isn't it? The very place where people, where Jesus is telling us about his invitation, but the very place where he's talking about human responsibility to listen to the voice of God and, re- and, and respond to it, he's also speaking about God's choosing. Few are chosen. Because the spiritual reality that Jesus is telling us, which the parable itself is not able to convey, is that every person who chooses to genuinely accept the invitation, who chooses to come into the kingdom, actually does so because God has chosen them first. God's choice doesn't undermine human responsibility. Human responsibility doesn't undermine God's choice. We choose because God God chose us first. Many are called, invited in, but few are chosen. Now we've already seen that in the original setting this parable was told against the chief priests and scribes and the Pharisees, the the Jewish religious leadership. They were like those who would not enter the kingdom even though they said they wanted to initially, who were invited to the wedding, who were invited to the kingdom but would not come, who ignored the king's servants or mistreated them and killed them. And God the king would punish them. 
destroy their city, invite others to the wedding. People, people like you and me. We're not the leadership of Israel, not even Jews. Good or bad, from all over the world, to make up his kingdom. But the sting in the tail of the parable reminds us that the problem still lives on. There'll be people like those Jewish religious leaders who seem to be God's people and are not. And even after Jesus brought in the kingdom through his death and resurrection, there'll be still people who seem to be part of it and have no share in it. People who don't really belong to the kingdom, just like many of the Jews in Jesus' day, were not God's truly chosen people. And they'll be kicked out into the darkness because they're not dressed for the wedding. So friends, this parable does not just apply to the Jewish leadership of Jesus' day. It is also a warning for us. It is warning both for those who consider themselves to be Christian and those who don't. It's an invitation as well. You see, for those who haven't yet considered themselves to be followers of Jesus, you are invited. You are invited to the wedding of God's Son. You are invited to receive Jesus as King and become part of His kingdom. To join in the celebration. To come under His rulership. Do not be like the religious leaders of Israel and spurn His invitation. Now many people do. And, and that is rude and offensive to the King. Some do it passively. Ignore the king's servants when they bring the invitation, too busy with work or family or hobbies or relationships to, to bother about the kingdom. Others do it actively. Purposely go against the king and his servants. Mistreat them and persecute them. But either way, they do not come to the wedding. They do not enter into God's kingdom and they miss out. Do not be like one of them. God is inviting you into his kingdom he wants you to know Jesus as your king now and to live with him forever enjoying his blessing and rule for all eternity he has done everything necessary for you to come in he has even sacrificed not, not the bull or the fatted calf but, but his own son to take away your sins so that you can come so that your background doesn't matter anymore maybe you're good in the eyes of the world nice decent person Maybe you're bad in the eyes of the world. People, society think you're evil. Doesn't matter. You are invited. You can be forgiven. Accept God's invitation. Receive his call. Come into his kingdom. And if you believe and if you submit to Jesus as king, then you will find that you are among the chosen few. On the other hand, there are those who we said seem to all intents and purposes to, to be in the kingdom but are not. I wonder if anyone here is like that. I hope not, but, but is there? You come to church on Sundays, you take part in church activities, you pray and read the Bible, you are known as a Christian, you are in the kingdom. Well, but you're not wearing the wedding clothes. You're not really genuine. And if this goes on, then when the king comes, you'll be kicked out. So we need to check on ourselves. Now the parable doesn't say what the wedding clothes represent. It doesn't tell us what it means to be genuine. But the rest of the Bible does. 
And there are two elements that we can see there. First of all, the genuine Christian is, is, the, is the one who has faith in Christ alone for salvation. And the Old Testament in Isaiah 61 speak about, speaks about the robe of righteousness. It says, I delight greatly in the Lord, my soul rejoices in my God. For he has clothed me with the garments of salvation and arrayed me in robe of righteousness. It's God's gift. And this righteousness, being, being right with God, is, is something that God makes possible through the death of Jesus. In, in uh, 2 Corinthians 5.21 it says, For our sake he made him, that's Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That is, Jesus is sinless, but he became sin for us on the cross, so that we could have his righteousness. That we could be legally considered innocent and, and, and have a right standing with God by trusting in him. And so we receive that righteousness by faith, by trusting in Jesus, as Romans 3 tells us. So that if we believe and trust in Jesus as our Savior and our King, then, then we are clothed with his righteousness. And our place in the wedding, our part in the kingdom, is secured by his death for us and applied to us by faith in him. So we have a place in God's kingdom and we, are, we, we, are approved, we have God's approval. We are secure. Secondly, genuine faith in Jesus results in a change of life. A true believer, someone who truly does belong in the kingdom, will surely exhibit fruit of such change. There are many passages we could look at to, to talk about this, but since we're talking about clothes, let me show you some that describe this in terms of what we wear. Our Colossians 4 tells us that we have, <coughs> we have put on a new self. Taken off our old self with his practices and put on a new self. And so we have to live in a new way. You must rid yourself of all such things as these anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language, lying. Why? Because you've taken off your old self, put on your new. The metaphor works slightly differently in Ephesians 4, though the end result's the same. We're a new people, and so we live in a new way. That's, that uh, is, is inconsistent with that. And this time the new lifestyle is, is, uh, is, 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 is pictured in what we wear. So your former way of life, take it off. Take off your old self, being corrupted by its deceitful desires. Be made new, put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Romans 13 says, clothe yourself with the Lord Jesus Christ. And do not think about how to gratify the desires of the sinful nature. Closing yourself with Christ means results in, in holy thinking and living. So while the Bible uses a metaphor of clothing in different ways, the, the, the message is the same. New life means new lifestyle. The genuine believer listens to the Spirit who speaks these things in God's Word. And, and as he or she begins to change, he, takes, he or she takes on new attitudes and, and new practices in light with their new identity. So if we really are in Christ, then we will be trusting in Him and Him alone for our salvation and we will be producing the fruit that comes from Him. And those two things go together. True faith expresses itself in love. And so if we are truly in the kingdom, we will be wearing the robes of righteousness that come by faith in Jesus and therefore be putting on practical righteousness in the way we act. Does that make sense? Okay, let me conclude then. The invitations have gone out. And they continue to go out. Many have been called. Few have been chosen. 
Will you come for the wedding? Will you say yes to Jesus and come into his kingdom? And if you have said yes to Jesus, are you sure that you are in the kingdom? Are you trusting him and him alone for your salvation? And are you showing in your daily life the fruit of the righteousness that comes from faith in him? Or are you just a gatecrasher, a pretender in the kingdom of God? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your gracious invitation to us in the Lord Jesus. Thank you um, that you have invited us, each one of us, to to be part of your kingdom. We join in that great feast. Thank you that it doesn't depend on our background, whether we're good or bad or anything like that, but it depends on your grace and your kindness and your invitation to us. Thank you that you've done everything. you made everything ready. That our Lord Jesus has died for us so that we can be forgiven. That he's been raised from the dead and exalted as king so that we can be part of your kingdom. Our Father, we pray that each of us here would be people who put our trust in Jesus, who believe in him, who trust in him, and who produce the fruit of that in his kingdom. That we may truly be part of, of that kingdom. Our Father, we pray that you help us um, not to be people who just uh, pretend to be in the kingdom, uh, but truly trust in Jesus. And we pray that that, that faith will express itself uh, in the way we live. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.